together this morning and think about what God's done for us and how we can respond and how we can live in the light of his presence. Well, good morning. I'm glad to see you here. And good morning to all of you who are with us online. Nathan always does the, um, if we've not met, I'm Nathan Brand, and I always want to say, what if we have met? Are you still Nathan Brand? But um, whether we have met or not, I'm Jim Cluth, and, and I will remain so, hopefully, till the end of my days. Um, and you got to get through one with me here, and then I really, really want to encourage you to come out next week and the week after that. C. John Steer is going to be with us for two weeks. Uh, I don't know if you know Pastor Steer or not. He was senior pastor at Autumn Ridge for 30 years. Uh, he retired in 2019, and he has more energy in his little finger than most of us have in our entire bodies. So uh, come, come and hear Pastor Steer, what he has to preach for the next couple of weeks after that. Um, I have to admit this was a tough message to title. And so I want, to, I want to give you some of my attempts here as I warm it up. Uh, I tried uh, Samson, the captain who was barely on the team. Samson, strong here, weak there, and there, and there, and there. Um, and I finally landed on Samson conformed or transformed. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning and to give us some context to this, um, I want to tell you about our recent move. So a lot of you know that my family and I moved uh, to a different property at the end of last school year. No, end of last calendar year. <laughs> end of last school year would have been a terrible time to move. Um, end of last calendar year. Uh, it was December 23rd, <clears throat> to be precise, and the weather held up really nicely for us. Uh, until we had most of the stuff moved in, and then about 2 p.m., the sleet started coming down, and it turned into that Minnesota nastiness that we're all familiar with, right? And the rest of the stuff just had to be thrown into the barn, uh, 36 by 54 pole barn, and so the stuff just got piled out there, and then more stuff got piled out there, and the previous owners had left us some of their stuff out there, and those of you that know me know that stuff just accumulates to me, that it, it attracts, and I don't even pay for it, and it just shows up. Uh, and the barn right now is an absolute disaster. You can barely walk around between the things in the barn, and it would probably take a professional organizer weeks to handle the mess that is out there. I am not a professional organizer. I am not even a talented organizer, especially of physical spaces, and the level of disorder out there is overwhelming to me. And as I was thinking about the barn, it occurred to me that that's a lot like what you experience in the Old Testament. Right? The Old Testament contains the account of how we humans created good and in the image of God became sinful and how once the sinning got into full swing, the level of awful stuff that we did to each other is absolutely fantastic. The horrible things humans did to each other uh, stand in striking contrast 
to all the kindness and ethical treatment that I've experienced from other people for most of my life. What's the difference? It's Jesus. The whole Old Testament highlights the desperate state of humanity without Christ. Right? When we try to do life by trusting in ourselves instead of trusting in God, that's what we get. And the events of the Old Testament prove what God has been saying to us all along, that we desperately need a Savior who is like us and yet who is not us. Here at Berean, we've been preaching through the book of Judges this summer, a book that is one of the low points of the spiritual life in Israel's history. And we've come to the last of the judges, men and women that God raised up to lead the nation of Israel, a nation that had a terrible time obeying him and staying out of entanglements with other nations and the idolatry of those surrounding nations. And as we pick up Samson's story, I want us to note that in our minds, the period of the judges, and well, and I shouldn't say this, I mean, for you, but for me, I've always struggled with the idea. I've thought of the period of the judges as over here and the period of the kings as over here. Yeah, that's not really true. The time between the ministry, ministry of Samson and the time between uh, Saul and David and Solomon that's probably like 50 to 75 years. It's not very far removed. So you'll remember from last week that at the time of Samson's birth, Israel was being oppressed by the Philistines. And by this point in the judges' cycle, the people are so used to spiritual failure and so used to the oppression that results from it that they didn't even cry out to God. But God still responded. He still cared for them, even though they didn't even cry out to him. And so he initiated um, by going to a man named Manoah and his wife and telling Manoah and his wife that they were going to have a son who was going to be set apart, right? Right there from the beginning, he initiates a rescue for Israel by announcing that Samson would be born, and God was going to grant them this miracle baby who was going to be a Nazarite and who would begin the deliverance of Israel from the Philistines. Now, it takes Manoah a little while to understand what's going on and to not manipulate the angel of the Lord, who best scholarship understands is actually the pre-incarnate Christ. So Manoah was trying to manipulate God himself. Uh, But when he does, they accept the miracle, and in due time, Samson is born. The end of chapter 13 tells us that the Lord blessed Samson and that the Spirit of God began to stir in him. Well, let's go ahead and get started with Samson's adult life in chapter 14. So we're going to be taking a lot of ground this morning. Uh, We're going to be covering Judges 14, 15, and 16. And so the way I'll handle that is I'll read the segment, talk about it, read the next segment, talk about it. So you'll only hear each piece one time. So going fast. 14, verse 1 of Judges. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now Get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, 
Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power, so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. For any person who has been born again, born spiritually through faith in Jesus Christ, there are always two options. Either you can be conformed to this world, which is in rebellion against its creator, or you can be conformed to the character of Christ. According to Paul in Romans 12, 1 and 2, the way we do this is by choosing not to conform to the pattern of this world, but instead to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And Samson had these same opportunities. He could do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, or he could do what was right in his own eyes. And too many times, he chose what was right in his own eyes. The first thing we find Samson doing is being attracted to a Philistine woman from Timnah. And Samson's parents object because they rightfully recognize that the Philistines are not God's covenant people at this time in salvation history, and that Samson could easily become enmeshed in their culture and their idolatry. But Samson persists, and the language he uses is telling. NIV translates in verse 3, Get her for me, she's the right one for me. But the point of the Hebrew here and in verse 7 is that she was pleasing in his eyes. And in fact, the the verse 7 grammar literally says she pleases his eyes. So uh, verse 4 throws us a curve and lets us know that this ostensibly selfish move by Samson was actually in line with what God was planning because he was going to use it as an opportunity to open a confrontation with the Philistines. The same part of the narrative presents Samson's first act of supernatural strength. The death of the lion is a necessary part for the next part of the narrative. Fun little side note, we usually picture Samson as being totally jacked, don't we? Okay bulging muscles and a huge barrel chest. That's how all the Sunday school illustrations that I ever saw growing up. Um, But I need to point out that it doesn't say anywhere in the passage that he's extra large, only extra strong. Now, I'm not saying that he couldn't have been large. I'm not saying that he couldn't have been Nathan, Brand, Jeff, Schmall, and Evan Kluth all rolled into one. I'm not saying that, but he also could have looked like me, which would have highlighted the Philistines' puzzlement with how this guy kept, you know, there's there's a lot of questions around this. Verse 8, sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. 
In it was a swarm of bees and some honey, which he scooped out with his hands and ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Now his father went down to see the woman, and Samson made a feast there as was customary for bridegrooms. When he appeared, he was given 30 companions. As part of his Nazarite calling and vows, Samson is not supposed to handle anything dead. But that doesn't stop him from scooping the honey out of the carcass of the lion that he'd killed earlier. When, he, when they arrive, Samson prefa- prepares the wedding feast, which was a seven-day affair in the style of the ancient Near East. And of course, they're going to drink the fruit of the vine at this kind of a wedding. So either Samson completely abstains at his own wedding, if you believe that, right? Or he's violated his Nazarite vows a second time. The 30 companions provided to him are probably something like a security detail. Now, they're there to partake in the celebration, but they're also there to protect against bandits and robbers. Verse 12. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you can give me the answer within the seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. He replied, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. For three days, they could not give the answer. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to rob us? Then Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing, You hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't even explained it to my father and mother, he replied, so why should I explain it to you? She cried the whole seven days of the feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her because she continued to press him. She, in turn, explained the riddle to her people. In this part of the account, Samson introduces a riddle and a bet based on it. Riddles were very popular at this time in history, and Samson's pretty sure that he can win the coveted prize of all that clothing. But I'd like you to notice in these verses the shallowness of the relationships here. Samson's greedy, and the Philistines are greedy. Nobody in this passage really trusts anybody else. And when they realize that they aren't going to guess the riddle, the Philistine companions threaten death to the bride and her entire family. Caught in a terrible situation, Samson's wife turns to manipulation and unbridled emotion in a desperate attempt to save her family. And what should be a happy occasion instead turns into a neurotic nightmare that culminates in Samson finally giving her the answer to the riddle. Now pay attention to this because this is not the last time that Samson will be overcome by a woman's pleading. 14 verse 18. 
Before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of their belongings, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he went up to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to the friend who had attended him at his wedding. So, they answered the riddle correctly, and Samson calls them out for cheating. If you had not plowed with my heifer is an accusation of cheating because you don't plow with heifers. Right? So plowing with a heifer would be inappropriate, just like they had acted inappropriately. And here we get into the complex moral morass that is the book of Judges. Right? The stated goal of Samson's life given to him by God himself was to begin the deliverance of Israel from the Philistines. But because of the way that he goes about it, it may have looked more like fulfilling selfish purposes than God's judgment on the Philistine people. And you see this throughout the life of Samson. Samson goes about things in underhanded ways, and it's really hard to tell whether these are battle tactics or just a guy being incredibly selfish. Related to this, the city of Ashkelon is almost 20 miles from Timnah, and so it's possible that Samson wanted to keep the knocking down of the 30 guys there and stealing all their clothing uh, a secret. Back in Timnah, Samson hands over the spoils of their victory from cheating and then heads back to his home. Striking down the 30 men of Ashkelon is his third act. Nope, just second, sorry, second. Second act of supernatural strength. <clears throat> 15, 1 through 5. Later on, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. He said, I'm going to my wife's room. But her father would not let him in. I was so sure you thoroughly hated her, he said, that I gave her to your friend. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches, and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing grain together with the vineyards and olive groves. That one always makes the Sunday school stories. Um, I feel like kind of like we've entered some sort of daytime television episode here at the beginning of chapter 15. In these verses, Samson tries to go and visit his wife. The arrangement they had here is called a visit marriage. The woman would remain in her father's household, and her husband would periodically visit her, I bet you can guess why, um, and then return to his own home. In this case, a visit marriage would have eliminated the awkwardness of a Philistine woman living among Samson's family and friends in Israel. 
But when Samson arrives, he finds out that his wife has been given to the equivalent of the best man. And again, he's angry and believes that he has a right to revenge against the Philistines. This time, he really will do some damage to Philistia. Now, if you are kind of a skeptic like me and wondering, supernatural strength aside, how did this man gather 300 foxes and tie their tails together? Skeptic friends, be concerned no more. I have good news for you. The Hebrew word for fox and for jackal are basically the same word, and jackals travel in packs. So it's quite likely that these were jackals that he grabbed and tied together and lit and sent through the grain of the Philistines. So much more likely. Anyway, um, yeah, fascinating stuff there. This is his third act of supernatural strength. 15, verse 6. When the Philistines said, Who did this? They were told, Samson, the Timnites' son-in-law, because his wife was given to his friend. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. Samson said to them, Since you've acted like this, I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Etam. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The men of Judah asked, Why have you come to fight us? We have come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to him, We've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, Swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him up from the rock. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him with power. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding the fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, With a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramoth-Lehi. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. So the spring was called en and it is still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. The murder of the woman who was to be his wife, remember the one who pleased his eyes, heads Samson into another cycle of revenge. He kills more Philistines and then goes into hiding in a protected place that would be difficult to find and more difficult to attack. When the Philistines come out to counterattack, 3,000 men of Israel confront him. That's a lot. 
Again, notice the shallowness of his response in verse 11. Basically, they did it to me first. You also see Samson using deception here as he tells the Israelites to bind him and hand him over. Once again, the Lord provides the strength to break these new ropes easily and go to war, one man against all these Philistines. He kills a thousand of them using the donkey's jawbone, and this is his fourth act of supernatural strength. And at just the moment when we start to think that Samson's invincible, and maybe Samson himself was starting to believe that his unbelievable strength was actually just one of his human attributes, he becomes very thirsty, and he cries out to God, the all-powerful, ever-present God, the living Lord of history. And God opens up a spring in Lehi where Samson is able to quench his thirst. You know, as I look out over this congregation, I see many people of high ability, many people with a passion for the kingdom of God, many people who are well-respected in the Rochester community, and it occurs to me that it would be easy for us to think that we're just that good, just that honorable, just that talented. Do we ever start thinking that way? If we do, God in his grace gives us circumstances that remind us that we are mortal, that we are finite, and that without his work in our lives, we have nothing that lasts for eternity. When we seek his face in those things that look like limitations, it's our job to listen to what he has to say to us and to figure out whether that obstacle is something that we're to go through or whether that obstacle is something that he's going to bring us around or bring us over. The chapter concludes with a note that Samson led Israel for 20 years. But 20 years is a long time. But it's not forever. If you want a sense of how long 20 years is, 9-11 will be 20 years ago next month. Amazing, huh? 16, 1 through 3. One day, Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. The people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, At dawn we'll kill him. But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate, together with the two posts, and tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. One of the great contrasts in Samson's life is the difference between his moral strength and his physical strength. Now, no one who has ever lived has equaled Samson's raw muscle power. Well, except Nathan Brand. There, in fact, there are some rumors that there may have been an occasion where we were moving a number of people uh, about 10 years ago, and four of us we're trying to get this lift gate thing on the back of a moving truck in place. This is a true story. And so I'm over here, and I don't remember who else was with me, but there were four of us, and Nathan walked up. 
he grabbed the entire structure all by himself, yoinked it up like that, and dropped it into place. And the rest of us are just standing there looking at him. It's amazing. But something that's not amazing is Samson's moral strength. There's just not much there. And so um, the setup to this event is merely that he saw a prostitute and decided to spend the night with her. It was not a planned event. It just looked good to him in the same way that the unnamed woman from Timnah looked good to him and the honey in the lion's carcass looked good to him. And there's actually a lot to, to learn here in these three verses. When we live unintentionally, it's so easy to be sucked into whatever the flavor of the day is. The culture that we live in is bursting with shiny objects, fun experiences, and far more sinister things. And the slide into moral carelessness or just living for nothing is so easy. Facebook and other social media are a great whipping boy here. I wonder how many millions of hours of believers' time is spent watching cat videos and looking through 57 photos of someone's vacation that you don't even know that well. Desiring God had an article about men who live for nothing a few months ago. The writer profiled this type of man. I thought this was interesting. He's a nice man, would never think of looking at pornography or stealing from his employer, goes to work, treats the people around him decently, but fills up all of his non-scheduled hours with things that make no impact on eternity. He's living for nothing. The solution to this is intentionality. It's to stare your flesh down and to declare, I am a blood-bought saint of the living God. I have a choice every day to conform to the pattern of this world or to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. And when I come across these surprise temptations, these surprise tantalizations, I will have a response prepared in mind already because of the work of the Word of God and the Spirit of God in my life. And when I evaluate my life, if I see that I'm living for nothing of eternal value, I will make one concrete change for the glory of God and the good of myself and the good of the people around me. 16, verse 4. Some time later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answered her, if anyone ties me with seven fresh thongs that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh thongs that had not been dried, and she tied, them with, she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the thongs as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, You have made a fool of me. You lied to me. 
Come now, tell me how you can be tied. He said, If anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then, with men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. Delilah then said to Samson, Until now you have been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. He replied, If you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with the pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So, while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric, and tightened it with the pin. Again, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and pulled up the pin in the loom with the fabric. Then she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when you won't even confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite set apart to God from birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, Come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. Having put him to sleep on her lap, she called the man to shave off the seven braids of his hair, and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again, after it had been shaved. As you can see, Samson spent most of his life living for the glory and pleasure of Samson instead of for the glory of God. And that kind of living finally catches up with you, as it does here. When he falls for yet another Philistine woman, the Philistine rulers use his weakness for women to figure out the source of his strength. The payment they offered Delilah, 1,100 shekels each, is a huge amount of money in their society, probably more than 500,000 in today's dollars. But they wanted Samson neutralized. It was worth it to them. He was their main national security threat. In verses 6 through 16, Delilah asks over and over the secret of Samson's great strength. And Samson basically plays with her and the Philistines again and again. In all, he tells them three recorded scenarios, seven fresh throngs, new ropes, and weave my hair into braids on the loom, and probably had a few other fun times trying to dupe the Philistines that aren't recorded. In the end, it turns out that playing with fire will get you burned. 
verse 16 lets us know that all of Delilah's nagging finally wore Samson out, and he told her the truth about his Nazarite vows and the source of his unusual strength. Delilah, of course, acts on this information and has his head shaved while he sleeps. Notice here that when Samson allows an adversary to shave his head, he's now betrayed the third point of his Nazarite vow. So all three of them have been violated. But when he awakes to the cry, Samson, the Philistines are upon you, he assumes all is well as usual. It's not. One of the saddest verses in the Bible is verse 20 and tells us that the Lord had left Samson and that Samson's great strength was not his own. It was the Lord's. And so, for the first time in his life, Samson is overpowered, humiliated, and disabled by his enemies. The Philistines gouge out his eyes and set him to grinding grain in a prison a job that would, have recovered, that would have required not sight, but just labor. Samson's eagerness to conform with this world and to cozy up with the culture has left him in a dark and dismal place, alone, blind, and enslaved to oppressors. I have known believers who struggled with the question of whether they were truly saved, or whether the Lord had left them if they had committed some particular sin. And I want to tell you that the New Testament gives us plenty of comfort in this area. You see, when you come to faith in Christ, something amazing happens. You get to live a spiritual reality that no Old Testament saint ever experienced. While the Old Testament describes the Holy Spirit coming on a leader for a specific occasion of ministry or whatever, it was not a permanent condition. But after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, after the day of Pentecost, after the establishment of the early church, every time someone puts their faith in Christ, they are indwelled by the Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity. As a believer, you have the joy of knowing that no matter how badly you've acted in the past, no matter what failures or struggles exist in your life right now, God is not giving up on you. Paul writes in Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Notice that none of the actions Paul describes depend on you. They are 100% God's work through Christ in you. Will God give up on you and leave his work unfinished, as I so often do? Not according to Philippians 1.6, where Paul declares, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
If God has saved you, he will sanctify you. If God sanctifies you, he will glorify you in the presence of himself and before all the saints and the angels. But Samson's story is not over, you see, because God didn't abandon him either. Let's go back to Judges 16. 23. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us! So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood. Bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other, Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might And down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had led Israel for 20 years. In verse 22 we hear that Samson's hair begins to grow again, foreshadowing that something good is going to come out of all the failure that is Samson's life. It's a little bit like hitting the reset button as he reconsecrates himself to God. The Philistines, for their part, are just having a blast celebrating the victory that they think has happened over Samson, and for good measure, they bring him out as entertainment. By the way, The author of this passage is having a little bit of fun here as well. Do you remember the rhyme, out of the eater something to eat, out of the strong something sweet? Well, in this passage, Samson is the eater. He has eaten many, many lives and much grain of the Philistines. And now something to eat, grain, comes out of him as he grinds the grain in the mill and out of the strong, Samson's the strong, something sweet, the entertainment that he brings them at this festival. So, but that's just literary analysis. Let's go on. Anyway, as the Philistines celebrate their God's supposed victory over Samson, Samson invokes the true God, asking for just one more victory in which he will give his life. Note that he's still looking for revenge, but God answers his prayer and allows him to kill more of the enemy in his death than he ever did in his life. It's not a beautiful ending, 
and it costs Samson whatever is left of his earthly life. But once again, it demonstrates God's sovereignty over the affairs of human beings. So what do you do with a story like Samson's? I'd like to suggest a couple of things. One, you acknowledge that God is God and that we are not. Samson didn't choose himself to be Israel's deliverer. God set him apart for that. In the same way, you and I need to determine what our callings are from God, and then we need to live those out. We need to embrace those callings. Number two, you use Samson's story of too much conforming to this world as a spotlight on your story. Where are you compromising? Where are you refusing to be transformed into the character of Christ? Where are you living for your own glory instead of the glory of God? And finally, you can use Samson's story to thank God that his ultimate rescuer had no faults at all. No character issues that hampered his ability to carry out our salvation. Fallen, foolish Samson carried out some aspects of God's will for him, but Jesus lived in complete dependence, in complete obedience to his Father. Scripture says that Jesus was tested in every way, just as you and I are, yet was without sin. This is something that Samson could never say, but praise God, Jesus can. When, when Samson died, he brought death to many around him. When Jesus died, he brought life to anyone who would receive him by faith. He remains our king, our friend, and the one who can save to the uttermost those who trust in him. Thanks for sticking with me through three, not of the shortest chapters in the scriptures. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we're able to gather in your name this morning that we're able to read from your word, that we're able to apply the things that we find there to our lives, Lord. And as we look at Samson, we are challenged with the idea of how conformed we are to this world around us. So help us to evaluate our own lives, help us to evaluate the structures that we're a part of, and to ask, are we doing things based on the pattern that you've given us, or have we adopted the ways of the world into our own lives? Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for the fellowship of the saints. Thank you for the opportunity to be Christ to one another because you have indwelled us by your Holy Spirit. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.